What's happening, everybody? Lunch with Larsh is one of my favorite events. I'm just a procrastinator, so I haven't done it yet, but really, you guys should all sign up. It really is one of the best events that we do here, and I just, I gotta plug it in because it's great. So today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. You can follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians for children, preschool and kindergarten, you can escort your kids to the back of the room and upstairs uh, for Kids Rock. It's inside today because it's a bit chilly. As you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and other things sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all, of, all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here! Stop turning my father's house into a market! His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what signs can you show us to prove that you, that you are authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, like Pastor Matt said, my name is Bryn. I'm one of the pastors at Anchor Bay Church, formerly High Rock North Shore. And we have been so excited to continue in this partnership together as churches. And I came up with a name for the partnership. Do you want to know what it is? I was like more excited about the name for the partnership than I was about our name for the church. So we are Anchor Bay Church, and we're on the coast, and you guys are Haverhill Commons, and you're on the land, and so together we are Surf and Turf. <laughs> Thanks, Angie. <laughs> I was really, really proud of that. So we got to have like a Surf and Turf picnic where we actually have real Surf and Turf. All right, so one of the things that we do at our church is we like to just pause in the beginning. I know you guys do this at your church too, pause in the beginning of the sermons, just kind of invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us with whatever we brought into the room, uh, whatever kind of thoughts and ideas or struggles or joys that you are processing through right now that you brought into this room. We want to invite you to invite the Holy Spirit to speak into those places as we dive into God's Word. So I'm just going to let us be quiet for a second, and then I'll open us with a word of prayer after a minute. God, we thank you for this weekly opportunity to come together as a community and worship you corporately. We know that that hasn't always been easy um, for people around the world or even here, and so we thank you that we can do that now. 
And we thank you for what you teach us in your word about who you are, who we are. And we pray that this morning you would draw us closer to yourself, that even as we hear words about you flipping tables, that that would feel like an invitation to know you better, to love you better, and to be loved by you. And that out of that, you would help that love spill out onto the rest of the world through us. We love you. We offer this time as an act of our worship, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the cities that we serve on the North Shore is a city called Salem. Has anyone ever been to Salem? Or li- I know some of you have lived in Salem. Salem is a, a very fun city. But this month, Salem has been crazy. Maybe you've read some news articles about Salem this time of year. It has been absolutely crazy, and it's usually crazy in October. But this year has been extra. That was just a couple of weeks ago. So the population in Salem is generally around 45,000 people. But on Saturdays, they've been welcoming like 100, over 100,000 extra people into Salem. Already this month, we've seen like almost 2 million people. It's not even been Halloween yet. It's been absolutely nuts. Residents are saying that that they'll just be walking down the street and people will just stop walking and just stand there because there's no more room to walk. It's just like at a complete standstill. My husband and I lived in Salem for five years and we lived right next door to the House of Seven Gables, which we put up right there, like right in the heart of all the tourist stuff. And we recognize that, that tourists didn't always realize that there were real humans that actually lived in Salem, like, full time. And so we, we would have tourists just, like, walk past our house and then look into our living room windows like it was a Disneyland ride. It was <laughs> really crazy. So why? Like, what is the draw of Salem this time of year? Well, we all, we all know it's probably Salem's rich maritime history, right? <laughs> Tourists come in droves to check out one of the oldest settlements in the country. They want to see all the rich cultural centers like the, the Peabody Essex Museum and the Salem Willows. They want to see the town that served revolutionary war heroes, right? No. They are here because they want to celebrate Halloween. Did anyone here go trick-or-treating in Haverhill last night? Any, any trick-or-treaters? Oh, fun. I love wearing costumes. I think Halloween is a lot of, of good fun. But Salem's kind of is famous for being this Halloween capital of the world. People come in droves to celebrate Halloween in Salem. Salem's biggest claim to fame, even though we have all of this other history there, is the Salem Witch Trials, which if you're in elementary school, you might learn about the Salem Witch Trials. It was an epidemic of mass hysteria where 19 people, mostly women, were hanged, and one man was pressed to death in the 1690s, all because they were accused of practicing witchcraft. And it's not just the famous Salem witch trials that have popularized Salem as a witch tourist destination. You've got Harry Potter, Bewitched in the 1960s, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Hocus Pocus, Hocus Pocus 2, which I watched this week because I had to know what everyone was talking about. People basically just come to Salem in October to get spooked. Now, I'm not going to come up here and condemn Salem as a tourist destination. Personally, I think a lot of it is in good fun. I like the costumes. I like the parades. I like the candy. I'm excited about the boost to Salem's uh, economy, especially after the pandemic. A lot of small businesses could really use that money. So some of it is really good. My friend uh, Stephen White is the pastor of First Baptist Church in Salem. First Baptist was where we were meeting when uh, High Rock Haverhill at the time was commissioned to be sent out as a church plant. So some of you worshiped with us in that space. And they have a new pastor there named Stephen, and he's a friend of mine. And he was interviewed by a local newspaper about how he felt about Halloween in Salem. And this is what he said. He said, this is a community 
that prides itself on respect and love. People come here because they can freely be themselves. More and more Americans are looking for a spiritual anchor. Maybe it begins with magic. Maybe it leads them to Jesus. But why wouldn't we all want to walk down that path together? So some of Salem's tourism can be fun, and some of it can lead to really helpful conversations. And at the same time, there's always this question, like big important question that Salem is constantly wrestling with about whether or not which tourism is really the best way to honor the legacy of a group of people who were killed in pretty horrific and unjust ways. So whether or not this is ultimately a good thing or a bad thing, it's a really good and it's a really important question, but it's a question for another sermon. What I do think is interesting for this sermon is why people go to Salem on Halloween. Like, Halloween has no roots in Salem. The two don't really have anything to do with each other. And Salem wasn't always the Halloween capital of the world, Halloween destination of the world. Like, can you imagine in the 1700s, a group of people coming from all over the country on horseback to get funnel cakes and show off their Tinkerbell costumes? No, <laughs> that wouldn't have happened. Salem became what it is today by design. So contrary to popular belief, don't tell the tourists this, but no accused witches were ever burned in the modern-day city of Salem. In fact, the Salem witch trials didn't even happen in the modern-day city of Salem. They happened in Danvers, Ipswich, and Andover. Most of that was called Salem Village at the time. But even Salem's famous witch house has never housed any actual witches. The 1960s roll around, and Salem city leaders realized that they could capitalize on what people believed to be true about the city of Salem. So they introduced cartoony witches into their part of, uh, part of their official PR branding. They started selling souvenirs. They set up haunted tourist traps. People who claimed to be practicing witches moved into town. And over time, Salem became to be known as Witch City. But the modern city of Salem only has very few actual historical connections to the Salem witch trials and even fewer historical connections to Halloween. The witch tourism of Salem barely resembles Salem's actual historical roots. And our story this morning, it takes place in a scene just like that. So if you brought your Bibles, I'd invite you to pull those out and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, to the passage that Jacob read a few minutes ago. So John chapter 2. We are, one of the things that we've been doing as a partnership as churches is we are sharing our sermon series. So we are all in a year-long partnership uh, sermon series on the gospel of John. And two weeks ago, Katie shared about Jesus's first miracle when he turned water into wine. It's such a beautiful passage. And in the first chapter of John, John chapter 1, we get this, the picture of the God of the universe, the God of the universe who created whole worlds, this majestic, personal, all-powerful being. And in John 2, we see this God doing the cha-cha slide at a wedding with his mom. Now, at first, it seems like that story and this story of Jesus flipping tables in the temple couldn't be more different. But that's one of the things that I love about Jesus, right? When Jesus comes into our lives, sometimes, Sometimes he fills our tables, and he absorbs our shame. And sometimes he flips our tables, and he spills everything onto the ground that we've ever known, and he changes everything. Both of these passages 
They point to who he is. Both of these passages point to the purpose of what he does. And both of these passages, they offer us a better and more beautiful way to live. So let's look at how it starts. Verse 13, it says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So we're in Jerusalem. And I want to take a minute and imagine this scene. Now, if you could imagine going back in time to Jerusalem back then, the biggest thing that you would see in the center of town is the temple in Jerusalem. Pastor Matt talked about the temple a few weeks ago. One Jewish historian described it like this. He said, The temple was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the first rising of the sun, it reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. So the temple, it was the beating heart of, of Judaism. It was their cathedral and their cultural center, their castle, their city hall, all wrapped up into one golden package, and it just kind of loomed over them all the time like the sun. But more important than the building itself, and the grandeur of the structure of it was what the community believed about the temple. The community believed that the temple was a symbol that pointed to the, to the place where heaven and earth would collide. This was a, a reminder. It was a sign. It was a symbol that pointed to the God who lived and ruled among them. The temple just, wasn't just a place where they believed that they could come and worship and be with God. This was a, a place that would, reminded them that they could worship God anywhere, that they could actually have a relationship with their God. So there's a temple, and they're at the temple, and it's Passover time. And Passover was the most, one of the most important Jewish festivals. It was when the Jewish people would come together, and they would remember their liberation from slavery in Egypt. They would celebrate their freedom every year. Year after year, they would remember this time in their lives. And people would come in droves to celebrate the Passover. It was kind of like the, the Halloween in Salem of temple time, which is maybe why they called it Jerusalem. Thanks. <laughs> I knew that was going to get eye-rolled. Um, but it was pretty amazing. I mean, historians, would, historians say that they believe that as many as 3 million people would cram into a single square mile on land selection day. Can you imagine that? 3 million people into a single square mile and they would select their animals for sacrifice during the Passover festival. So we have the temple, and it's Passover, and what does Jesus see when he walks up? He sees this holy place with its, its rich and its sacred history, and it hasn't stayed true to its roots. It says this, In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So, he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. This isn't our regular idea of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This Jesus is angry. He flips over their tables. He shouts, get these things out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Now, it's interesting, too. Sometimes we, we read this passage or we, we talk about this passage, and we imagine that Jesus just got so angry, and he just reacts to it out of his anger. Like he's showing this sudden outburst of angry emotion. But that's not what's happening here. He sees something that makes him angry, and he pauses long enough to make a whip out of cords. He takes his time. 
He's calculated. He's strategic. He's self-controlled. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's why, why some scholars, instead of calling this the, the traditional name, the cleansing of the temple, some scholars prefer to call this the temple stunt. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's coming in and his actions are, are intended to make a point. So the trouble is, scholars can agree on that much, but they don't seem to be able to agree on a lot more about this story. Like, what made Jesus so angry in the temple that day? Every scholar that I read seems to have kind of a different take. And it's especially confusing because this story is included in all four of the gospel accounts, but only in John does, does, uh, is, is it placed at the beginning of the story. Most of the other gospel accounts put it towards the end of the story. So it seems like no matter what else the story is saying, and all of the gospel writers seem to have kind of a different perspective that they're trying to put through on what the story is saying, but no matter what, John's gospel, he's putting it at the beginning because he wants to set the scene for everything else that's about to happen. This is a scene-setting moment in the story. So at face value, when we study this passage, it seems pretty clear why Jesus was so upset. Jesus was obviously angry about people buying and selling animals in the temple courts. And that's a, a pretty fair interpretation. Most of the um, sermons that I've ever heard about this passage and, and uh, pastors that I've ever talked to about this passage interpret the passage that way. It does seem to say that in the text. But I was studying this the other day, and I was texting a biblical scholar friend of mine, and I'm like, so, seems like Jesus is pretty upset about the marketplace. And she was like, yeah, it does kind of seem to say that, but when we look at the context, maybe it's not actually saying that. And I, I was like, okay, so that kind of feels like, like if your roommate leaves you a note on the milk carton, and it says, hey, I'm pretty upset at you for drinking the last of the milk. And you're like, whoa, so it seems like my roommate's pretty mad about something, but I don't know why. Like, <laughs> did you not read the note? It says it right there, milk. It's pretty clear why Jesus was upset in this passage, we think, because that's how most preachers have preached on the text. We know why Jesus was mad, because marketplace, it says it right there in the Bible. This theory says that the temple system had gotten so corrupt that the religious authorities had actually allowed a place of worship to become a place of commerce. It would be like if we gather here for a Sunday worship service and Pastor Matt just invited all the farmers in town to set up a farmer's market all up and down the aisles during the service and then require them to give most of their profits to him. That would maybe not be great. But here's the thing. Buying and selling animals for sacrifice in the temple, it wasn't wrong back then. The practice wasn't just common, it was kind of an economic necessity. Most people who were coming to Jerusalem back then for Passover, they were coming on pilgrimage. And it wasn't easy to travel with your animals for sacrifice when you're traveling that kind of distance. So a lot of people would just buy their animals for sacrifice when they arrived in Jerusalem at the temple. So that's a good interpretation of the text but it might not be all that's happening here in the text. Another interpretation that's really common and is another good interpretation about why Jesus got so angry is about where they set up their pop-up shops in the temple. So 
if you look in the, underneath the surface of the language, we, we read that they were in the courtyard of the Gentiles. And when you, you kind of study the ancient temple back then, there were different places where different types of people were allowed to go for their worship. You had places for Jewish men, places for Jewish women, you had places for the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were non-Jewish worshipers, and they were often kind of on the margins of that religious community back then. So this was potentially the only place where the Gentiles, people who were already on the margins of the community, were allowed to go in the temple to connect with God, to pray. So the, this theory says that if Jesus, Jesus is throwing out these merchants so that he can make sure that the Gentiles had a place where they could go to connect with God. And that's another really good interpretation, but it's not necessarily black and white either. Because another interpretation of that is that actually there were merchants set up all over the temple, not just in the temple, uh, the Gentile part of the temple. And bringing the market to the Gentiles could have been a way that merchants were actually trying to include the Gentiles. So this could have been a more inclusive act of the marketplace. So there are lots of other possible interpretations, interpretations about taxes and about prayer, and there, those are some really good interpretations, and, and many of them have a lot of validity, and there are good reasons for all of them. But the point is that the thing that made Jesus so angry, it's not totally clear. It's not totally black and white. But there are a few things that are clear about this passage. We know how not to interpret this passage. We know that this passage is not a justification for doing violence in Jesus' name. Now, sometimes churches have used this passage to create this image of a, a warrior Jesus with six-pack abs and a six-pack of beer. He is powerful patriarchal, authoritarian, chest-beating, butt-kicking alpha male. Many of the rioters from the January 6th insurrection, they cited this exact passage as a justification for their violent behavior. You know, sometimes we got to flip over some tables. That is a dangerous interpretation, and it is not what this passage is saying. So our church, Anchor Bay, did a, a Fruit of the, the Spirit series this summer. You guys didn't do Fruit of the Spirit this summer, no. We did Fruit of the Spirit series this summer, and if you've read the Fruit of the Spirit, it's, it's these things that we can read about in Scripture that are evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives and is transforming us from the inside out. And in the book of Galatians, we get this list of what the Fruit of the Spirit are. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know what's not on this list? Violence, toxic masculinity, saying mean things about cats. We may not, we may not be able to say with absolute certainty what this passage is exactly saying about why Jesus got so angry, but we can say with certainty what this passage is not saying. But beyond that, there are a few things that we can say about this passage, and we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about those things. So I'll, I'll open that section of the sermon with a personal story. So I used to work at a church in Atlanta, and there were a lot of really beautiful things happening at this church, and there still are. I believe that God is making disciples at this church. God was then, and God is now. And I think a lot of the things that are happening there are good and true to the gospel. But there were also some things when I started working there that I noticed right away that didn't really sit well with me. So I worked on the youth ministry staff, high school student ministry, and every year we took our students to camp every summer. The camp was called Hard Labor Creek State Park. That is the real name of the real camp that we took children to. <laughs> it, was, it was a 70-year tradition to go to this camp. And not a lot had changed 
over the course of 70 years, including that all of the students and youth staff who, who went to the camp were white, and all of the support staff were black. So I noticed that. Um, I remember walking up, the cook who came every year was this amazing African-American woman named Wheezy. And Wheezy had been coming for decades, and she brought her entire extended family along with her grandkids to camp. So these grandkids had kind of grown up going to this camp alongside of our church. And I, I noticed my first time, it was my second, only my second month on the job, but I, I noticed when I went to camp that Wheezy's family and grandkids just kind of kept to themselves in the lodge or in the kitchen all week. And I was new, so I just observed it the first year. But the second year, I thought I would try to make some connections with Wheezy's family. So I noticed when we got there that, that Wheezy's grandkids, who had kind of grown up at the camp at the time, they were teenagers. So they were around the same age as our uh, youth ministry students. And so I said, well, maybe they would want to come and join us for the week. You know, I, I, I could invite them to come hang out, play games with us, join the youth group. And, and one of them tried it for about an hour. And then she went back to the kitchen to be with her grandmother. And I, I remember being confused by this. And I, I pulled my boss aside and I said, so why, why don't they want to come hang out with us? Like, it'd be fun. We're not going to charge them for time at camp. They could come and play games with us. It seemed like it would be great. And he told me something. He said before he became the youth director at the church in 2005, one of the traditions at camp had been that they would gather around the campfire for worship service every night and they would sing traditional southern songs. Until he realized, listened to the lyrics, that these weren't traditional southern songs. These were traditional Confederate songs. And if you're learning about the Civil War in school, you might remember that Confederate songs were rally songs sung by southern armies who wanted to keep people in slavery. As soon as my boss realized what these songs were, he banned them from camp. We can never sing these songs ever again. But the institutional memory and a church culture that would allow for something like that to happen were still very much present. This was 2008. We were putting on a Christian camp 140 years after the Civil War had ended. And our church was sprinkling in Confederate songs into the worship sets. Wheezy's grandkids? had grown up hearing these wealthy white kids sing racist songs and then worship Jesus as if the two had anything to do with each other. No wonder they didn't want to hang out with us. This church had made the campfire worship services completely inhospitable to them. Now, I wish I could tell you that I made every effort to change things over the course of the next year and the following year, but I fell out of my depth. And at the time, I didn't know that I needed to ask more questions. So I just let things stay as they were. Our church had great things going for it. Yes, and. There were some things about our church that I believe would make Jesus want to flip some tables over. That is what I think is going on in this passage. Some of the people in this religious establishment are worshiping God faithfully in some ways, and in other ways, they have completely lost touch with their faith. Now, we don't know exactly what they were doing that made Jesus so angry, and maybe that's not the point. In fact, I'm kind of glad that we don't know exactly with clarity what made Jesus so angry, because it opens us up for the interpretation of where Jesus needs to flip tables in us and in our churches today.
It is very clear in this passage, though, that in some way, shape, or form, they have veered off course from true worship of how God had intended them to worship. And Jesus walks up to the temple, and he sees them. And he sees what they could become if they would just follow him. And what he does next is he stands as a prophet in a long line of prophets critiquing the ways that the people of his day had lost touch with true worship. Now, if you imagine prophets, some of us kind of think about prophets as fortune tellers, as people who can see the future with a crystal ball. But prophets in the Bible are simply truth tellers. They see things as they are. And then they call people into something better, something deeper, something truer, something more in line with how God has created them to be. And the object lessons that the prophets chose were usually pretty amazing. If you think about Jeremiah, he wore an ox yoke around his neck to symbolize Israel's impending oppression by the Babylonian Empire. Ezekiel built a model of Jerusalem, and he just laid on his side next to it for more than a year, and the only thing that he would eat was bread that was cooked over cow dung. Like, that's weird. The the prophets were weird guys, and they did weird things, but they made their point. And here's the interesting thing. Sometimes, sometimes we see prophets speaking against the oppressive empires of their day, like Babylon and Egypt, but most of the time, we see the prophets speaking to their own people as insiders, as peers. They were calling their own people, people just like them, into something better than they had imagined for themselves. And all throughout the Gospels, Jesus joins in this kind of critique. But when Jesus does this, it's not against his community. It's not from outside of his community. It's from within his own community, as one of their own as someone who loves the community and believes in it and imagines better things for it, as someone who is always calling them to be a better version, to be the people that God has created them to be. And here's the thing. That's what I believe that we are called to do as the church, too. There are moments in history when the church is called to critique itself to name the ways that we have grown away from our roots, and then to call one another back with a new imagination toward what we can become. And I was thinking about this passage, and I was thinking about the church, and I think that there are a lot of tables that Jesus would want to flip over in the American church today. Things like disunity, Christian nationalism, our tendency toward individualism, the fact that we are still so segregated, narcissism among our leaders, Neglecting the poor and the marginalized, judgmentalism and self-righteousness, power abuses, sex scandals. And what I want to do is I want to read about those things and hear about those things, and then I want to stand at a distance and point my finger in judgment and name the corruption that I see in churches around me, not Anchor Bay Church or Haverhill Commons, never our churches. I want to claim that, that those things and that corruption has nothing to do with me and my faith or me and my church. I want to call out the churches and the church leaders that I think are doing harm. I want to deconstruct the parts of the faith that I think are problematic, and I don't want to have to bother with the reconstruction. Sometimes I just want to burn it all down. Because I want to be a prophet, minus the dung bread. But judging people from a distance who aren't me, Naming myself the judge and jury of my faith community, that is not the invitation here. Jesus is a prophet 
who refuses to stand at a distance from his heavenly throne or from behind his computer screen, wagging his finger at those people. No. Jesus delivers his message from up close as one of them, as a fellow embodied human, as a peer, as someone who loves them. He's always eager to embrace, always eager to forgive, always eager to communicate that they are loved by the God of the universe no matter what. Always, always his message is an invitation back to true worship. I think we see this this passage and Jesus is angry, but I think under the anger, and usually anger is is a uh, surface emotion for something that's happening on a deeper level, So I think what's happening with Jesus at a deeper level is I think his heart is breaking when he sees disunity, Christian nationalism, our tendency toward individualism and segregation, narcissism among our leaders, a church that neglects the poor and the marginalized, self-righteousness, judgmentalism, power abuses, sex scandals. I think his heart breaks. I think his heart breaks when he sees people he loves struggling with habitual sin, relationship struggles, pain and hurt, shame that tells them that they aren't good enough. And when he tells them to return to him, it's always an invitation towards healing, healing of the individual, healing of the church, healing of the community, healing of the whole world. There's this interesting moment in the story when Jesus says something a little cryptic. So the people in the Gospel of John, they're always asking him for a sign, like prove that you are who you say that you are. And he just says, you want a sign? Here's your sign. Tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. What? They're like, Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. This temple has already taken us 46 years to build and we aren't even done with it yet. You're going to rebuild it in three days? But Jesus wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about himself. Because the temple was always intended to be a symbol that demonstrated the place where heaven and earth would collide, the reminder that they could meet God anywhere, that they could have a relationship with their God. And as we see all throughout John's gospel, that would come about through Jesus now, through his body. So when he says this this thing about tearing down the temple and rebuilding it in three days, he's talking about his death and resurrection. Because he knows that no matter how much he invites and invites and invites these people and and our people, we can't live out our faith on our own. And so he puts all of the old ways to death. All the sin, all the shame, all of the things in the world and in the temple and in the church that would make Jesus want to flip over those tables, and he puts them all to death. The Passover Lamb of God is sacrificed on the cross for you and for me. And three days later, He rebuilt the temple by offering us a new one, by rising again, just like he said. The physical temple was always meant to be a pointer, to be a sign, a symbol towards something greater, toward himself, toward the place where heaven and earth would collide. And then after his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come and dwell among his followers and that we would be many temples. We would be communities of of people where we could see heaven and earth collide. Now imagine that for a a second. Imagine yourself as a mini temple, a place where heaven and earth come together, where we see God's kingdom come. You and I are intended to be temples where God's own spirit dwells, 
So when he comes into our lives and he flips over our tables and he calls out the places where we have lost touch with our roots, it's not to condemn us, it's not to hurt us, it's not to exert power or control over us. It is always because we are intended to be just like him and he's going to root out anything in us that doesn't belong in those temples. Sometimes, sometimes temples need to be torn down in us, in the world, in the church. But they are always meant to be reconstructed in a way that looks like Jesus. It is only Christ's spirit alive in us that gives us any authority to speak into things that need to change about those around us or about the church or the world. It is only when we come as insiders, when we are fully in touch with our own sin and shame and our need for God's grace in the midst of those things that we can look at the way that the church is and call it into something better. It's only when we're ready to speak with grace and truth like Jesus does, as we read about in chapter 1 of John. It's only when we can speak with grace and truth like Jesus does that we can ever enter those courtyards. It's easy to want to deconstruct and to tear things down. And if you are in those place, that place of deconstruction, you are not alone and I'm so glad that you are here. I talk to people all day, every day, who are in a place of deconstruction, and they think that they are the only ones. They are not, and you are not. I have been in that place, too. It's easy to want to deconstruct, and sometimes it's important to deconstruct, but it's easy to want to stop with deconstruction. But the invitation in Christ isn't to stop in that place. It's always to reconstruct in health with him. So where do we start? Well, last year, one of the top four podcasts in the world was a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Did anyone listen to this podcast? There were a lot of people who listened to it. Obviously, it was one of the four, top four podcasts in the world, not just in the Christian world, but in the world. So this was a really popular podcast. It was produced by Christianity Today, and it tells the story of the, the small beginnings and then the explosive growth and then the very public and very painful dissolution of a megachurch that had many campuses all over Seattle and the West Coast. And I think it's an important podcast to listen to or stories are, like this are important to read because they, they raise an awareness of some issues to look for in a church that might be starting, starting to veer off course from its calling. But I'll be honest, when I listened to this podcast, it was really hard for me to listen to, not just because of the pain that this particular church had caused, but because I, when I'm being honest, I recognize some of those same impulses and tendencies in myself. I could always veer off course. My church could always veer off course. This church could always veer off course. And if we aren't paying attention, we could start watering weeds instead of fruits. If I ever entertain the idea that I am immune to the things that corrupt other leaders and other institutions, then I am most in danger of falling for them. And here's the thing. I don't think a single religious authority from Jesus' day or a single megachurch pastor who's fallen from grace in our day woke up one, one morning and they were like, what shall I do this day? How about I have a cup of coffee and then I stop worshiping God and start taking advantage of people? It never happens that way. Most of us don't wake up one day and suddenly decide to lose touch with God. These things happen very slowly. And sometimes you don't recognize they're happening. If, you, if you're a gardener, sometimes I'm, my husband and I are gardeners. Sometimes we'll go down into the garden and there's these weeds that have grown up overnight. And we're like, where did these come from? But sometimes those things are just growing under the surface. We don't see them until they start to surface 
and cause issues for the other plants. These things can happen very slowly. And so if we want to look and make changes at the way the world is and the way that the church is, we have to start by asking, what table is Jesus flipping in me? What better life is he inviting me into than the one that I'm living now? How could I lose touch with my roots if I keep letting these weeds grow? Yes, there are times when we need to name things that we see in one another or the church, but we always need to do that as a peer, as an insider, as one who is also seeking God's grace and transformation in our own lives, and to do so in a way that is never condemning, but is always inviting people into a deeper and deeper faith. So when you came in, you got some checklists. If you got one of those checklists, I'd invite you to pull those out. It's called the Giving Engaged Feedback. And if you know me, you know that I love Brene Brown. She's a social researcher out of uh, Texas, and I have followed her for years, and I really love the way that she talks about things. Um, one of the things that she talks about is giving feedback in a really productive way. And so I took a checklist that she wrote in one of her books, Daring Greatly, and I adapted it for our context. Uh, so we're going to go over that in a few minutes, but she gives the, these guidelines for giving feedback. And if you are in a place where you need to give feedback to another person, if you're not now, you will be at some point, and if you can't check off all of these checkboxes on this checklist, it's probably best to wait to give feedback until you can check those things off. And that doesn't mean just like stay, staying at a distance from people. It means spending some time with God and saying, what do I need to do? What do you need to change in me so that I can start to interact with people in the ways that we see on this list? Part of our role as Christ followers is to help one another grow into Christ-likeness and to help our churches function well in the way that God has intended them to function. And that means that we are invited to share things that we see about one another and our church body that could grow or change to better reflect who Christ is among us. But in the way that we give that feedback, we also have to reflect who Christ is. And who Christ is, as we've already said, is a person who is full of grace and truth. So this isn't a permission slip to just whip each other with truth bombs or to use violence against each other, of course, emotionally or physically. Even in the ways that we use anger, we are intended to reflect God's love for the church that God created and loves, both for the individuals in it and for the whole community. There is a big difference between dumping criticism or a problem in another Christian's lap and expecting them to fix it and saying, here's something that I see that needs fixing, and I want to help, and I'm going to stick around to be part of the solution. So I'm going to go through that list. You guys have a longer list than I'm going to read, so I'm not going to highlight everything on this list, but spend some time with it. And if you are in a position where you need to give feedback to someone, whether that's someone at home, someone in the church, uh, someone in your workplace, a friend, and, and you're kind of thinking about how do I give feedback to this person about our relationship or about their performance or whatever, Think, of, think about this list with that person in mind. And notice which things on this checklist are sticking points for you. What are the ones that are hardest for you to wrap your mind around? So here's some of the things on the list. My posture is as a peer and fellow Christ follower rather than a critic. I'm willing to put the problem in front of us rather than between us or sliding it towards you. I'm ready to listen, ask questions, and accept that I may not fully understand the issue. I want to acknowledge what you do well instead of picking apart your mistakes. I recognize your strengths and how you can use them to address your challenges. 
I can hold you accountable without shaming or blaming you. I'm willing to own my part. I can genuinely thank you for your efforts rather than criticize you for your failings. I can model the vulnerability and openness that I expect to see from you. And this one's the most important. I can speak to you with grace and truth. Now imagine for a minute that you are on the receiving end of feedback and someone approaches you like this. Would you feel condemned? Or would you feel loved and embraced like they're actually working on the relationship with you? That is what we want for our churches. And when you see a whole community behaving like that, that reflects Christ in the world in really powerful and profound ways. So I'd invite you during the next worship set to, to spend some more time with this list. What are areas that are hardest for you? And then offer those things to Jesus. So we'll do that in a minute. Why don't we close in prayer? God, we offer ourselves to you grateful that you have called us living temples. And we ask that you would search us, that you would search out the places in our hearts that do not reflect who you are, and that you would flip those tables in us, that you would remove the things in us that do not belong in the temple of God. God, we pray for your courage by your spirit to be able to confront those places in our lives with no fear of condemnation, knowing that you are offering us a better way. And we ask that you would teach us that better way, that you would teach us the fruit of the Spirit in our lives instead of all the other things that we fill up in those temples. And we ask that out of that, that we would go into the courtyard with a spirit of love and compassion, grace and truth for the people in our lives who you are also inviting to change. We pray that our words would be blessings to them, invitations to them, and that together you would teach us more and more how to reflect who you are in the world. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.